from Psalm, chap, uh, Psalm chapter 94, starting in verse 1. This is the word of God. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? For they pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of a man, that they are a mere breath. Skipping down to verse 21. They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has been my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them in their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, O Judge of the earth, Lord, we do praise you, and we bow our heads before you this morning in reverence. O Lord, we do know and understand that you are coming to judge the world in righteousness, and you will do it by the man you have appointed even the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, we do pay homage to Him. We give our lives to Him. We are, in fact, His. We have been bought with a price, even the price of His own precious blood, for which, Lord, we are very grateful. We thank you that, Lord, we do not have to stand before you in judgment for our sins and the wickedness of our own hands and hearts, but that, Lord, he bore our iniquities in his body on the tree, and by his stripes we have been healed. Our Father God, we thank you for this great privilege of being among those whom you count righteous by the blood of our Lord Jesus and by his perfect life in which we trust. And Lord, we have a great hope of the coming resurrection, even as we see our Lord Jesus rising from the dead with power over death and hell. Our hope is in him. And Lord, we eagerly await his soon coming judgment upon the world to render what is right and good, to bring justice to this evil world, and to set things right so that your will may be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. 
Oh Lord, we look to that day with much expectation. We graciously thank you for your mercy. God, we offer our whole selves to you that we might walk after you and follow you, that you might make us so that we are like Jesus. God, help us to be like Jesus. Help us, Lord, to hear his word. And help us, Father, to see the things he has plainly shown us. And so, Lord, we just ask that today as we look into your word and we examine the uh, second coming of our Lord Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see amazing things in your word. God, help us to understand the severity of this day that is coming upon the whole world. Help us to understand, Lord, that the only escape for people in the world is repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be proclaimers of that good news. We honor you and we praise you this day because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen. Okay. Well, so that brings us back to our study of Second Thessalonians. And we have been in chapter 1. We got on our notes last week, we got down to uh, about halfway down page 75, where we were dealing with verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7. And I'm going to read verses uh, 5 through 10 for you. To kind of give some context and we'll pick up from there. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 5 through 10. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Amen? Amen. Well, as I've said several times in the course of our lesson, those are some of the most profound words in all of the Bible because they speak about the end of the wicked. And um, This is something that Paul highlights here in this section of 2 Thessalonians as a way of comforting the Thessalonians who are being persecuted severely. And he basically tells them that the Lord is watching. The Lord is paying attention. And he reminds them that he has a day of reckoning. He has a day of recompense. Not only that, but he, the Lord himself, is going to bring it personally. He is seen in these verses as the one who comes and personally 
deals out retribution to their enemies, those who are harming them and scorning them and troubling them with much affliction. And so Paul reminds them that the Lord is going to come in judgment. And of course, this reminder is desperately needed for suffering Christians, is it not? Because such has been their fate ever since there were Christians. And as I was pointing out last week, and and the week prior, people in the world are very tolerant of your belief as a Christian until you begin to preach it to them and tell them that they are themselves personally accountable to God. It's at that point that they become rather um, intolerant. Great word for that. They don't want to tolerate that for a minute, now do they? They don't want to hear about your God who judges. They don't want to hear about personal accountability for righteousness. In fact, they want to be the captain of their own ship. They want to live out their unrighteous deeds and thoughts with perfect freedom and no accountability for it. But God has said, and he does not lie, that he's going to bring man to judgment. And it would seem to me that this is the most important thing for people in the entire world, is to understand that there's a God in heaven who is going to judge them according to his perfect moral system of accountability, and that he has warned that if men don't repent and trust in his Son, whom he has provided to cover the offenses of their sins, that they're going to be shut out from his presence forever and destroyed eternally. Can there be a more important issue? Well, there's not. And of course, Paul brings it right to the forefront of the discussion here when he is telling the Thessalonians that the Lord himself, of course the Lord in this context is the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to come and he is going to bring them relief. And he's going to do it by afflicting those who have been afflicting them. And so uh, that brought us in our in our notes down to uh, the uh, middle of page 75. I, I ended by talking about the idea of preterism. And there's two reasons why I brought that up. The first one is... Uh, there was a preterist here in the class about three weeks ago who confronted me after the class and began to ask me some questions about it. And um, as is my custom, when people question things that I've been teaching, I like to bring those to the forefront and discuss them. Because surely if one person is questioning, then several others are as well. And so I always want to be as upfront and honest and clear and and uh, uh, supporting uh, things that I'm saying with the text of Scripture. And so um, I thought that I probably should address that, but it happened to fall right on the week when the following week I was dealing with these verses. And there really is a bit of a problem in these verses that I pointed out. 
And that is that if you read these verses in their historical context, that you find that these, this promise to bring relief to these suffering, persecuted Thessalonians never actually happened in their lifetime. You see that? That Paul says, hey, look, Jesus is going to come and give you relief when he's revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And when he does that, he's going to uh, deal out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so, if you will, um, there is an issue there. What's the issue? Well, this promise that was spoken to those Thessalonians never actually came to pass. So I explained that that should be a problem for us if we're examining the text closely. We ought to look at that and we ought to see, wait a minute, time out. And then furthermore, as we dig into that a little bit, we ought to understand why, right? Well, it has to do with the doctrine of eminency. That is, that the coming of the Lord is both certain, right, and expected. And that we are to expect the coming of the Lord and the deliverance of the Lord and the judgment of God in our lifetime. Why? Because that's what Jesus told us to do. He told us to expect it in our lifetime, which is what the apostles went out and did, and they obeyed, right? And they lived in expectation of the coming of the Lord. Surely, both letters of the Thessalonians are seasoned with Paul's expectation of the coming of the Lord. And in context, it certainly appears he expected that to happen in his lifetime, right? Although there is some language that would imply that maybe he thought it might not be in his lifetime. But nevertheless, the fact of the matter is, the Bible teaches us to expect the coming of the Lord in our lifetime. And uh, so, if you will, we find then that these promises were not fulfilled for the Thessalonians. Well, as we consider the whole uh, storyline of the Bible and uh, specifically the context of the New Testament and the second coming of Christ, and we combine that with our historical insight of what's been going on since the New Testament was written, we've come to understand that there is a parenthesis, right? That there is a period of time right here, which is, well, in dispensationalism, it's called a parenthesis. The reason why is because in... In Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks that were decreed for his people, which began with the going forth of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, right? Somebody could tell me that date if they were really sharp and had a study Bible and they knew right where to look it up. Nehemiah 2.10 is where it's at. Nehemiah 2.1 and 2. But nevertheless... That prophecy that Daniel gave of the 70 weeks, 69 of those were, were fulfilled at the coming of the Lord Jesus. The 69 weeks were fulfilled. And if you read the prophecy in Daniel 9.27, you all ought to know this by now, right? We've only read that preparatory reading three times now. Right? Daniel 9... 24 through 27. This is where we learn about the covenant of the Antichrist with the Jewish people and the abomination of desolation that happens at the midpoint 
of the 70th week. Right? Well, the 69 weeks were fulfilled because it said after 69 weeks, the Messiah would be cut off, which is terminology that talks about him being killed. And uh, that that happened at the first advent. That happened at the first coming of Christ. What hasn't happened is the 70th week has not yet been fulfilled. One uh, glaring example of this is in the words of the Lord Jesus himself in the Olivet Discourse when they ask him, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And he goes on answering their question, giving them these signs and giving them in a successive order and explaining that they're all going to come to pass in this certain way. Well, then he says right in the middle of that, as he's describing it, he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, right? What Jesus is referring to the abomination of desolation, which happens at the midweek, midpoint of the 70th week, Okay. So we know that at the time that Jesus had come, that was a still yet future event. Okay? And uh, moreover, when we get to Thessalonians, Paul is giving us much insight and understanding about the Antichrist himself, whom he is saying is still yet to be revealed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Right? So we know that... Um, this 70th week is something that has yet to come to pass in the course of history. Okay? So, why was I beating that drum? Because, because there's a parenthesis that's taking place. That parenthesis is what we call the church age. That's what they call it in the study of prophetic events anyway. Okay? Now, an amillennialist, right, We'll say this is the thousand years, okay, that's spoken of in Revelation 20. A post-millennialist will say that we're going to go along preaching the gospel until we reach a point in history where the world has been Christianized. And then there's going to be a period of a thousand years of peace because of that preaching of the gospel. And that's going to culminate in, I'm sorry, I did that wrong. That's going to culminate all the way over here. So we're going along preaching the gospel, and then there's a thousand-year period. That culminates at the second coming of Christ. That's the view of a post-millennialist. Christ returns after the millennium. The millennium is ushered in by the preaching of the, of the gospel by the church. You understand? Post-millennialism. Of course, we're not post-millennial and we're not amillennial because we believe that the events in Revelation 20 are literal. We read the Bible and we believe what it says literally. True? Amen. So what's portrayed there is a thousand-year period that happens after the second coming of Christ when he establishes his millennial, millennial kingdom and rules and reigns with his priests unto God for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, right? And then it's after the thousand years are over that there's a final rebellion 
and the destruction of Satan and death and hell. <coughs> right? Of course, during this time, Satan is bound. It's a tremendous time of peace on the earth. But the Bible says he'll be released to go out to deceive the nations again and to gather them up to make war. And then it's at the end of that time that the Lord destroys them all. And that, of course, is the fulfillment of the day of the Lord. The full scope of the things spoken of at the day of the Lord happen at the end of the millennial kingdom. Right there. God says in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Behold, I'm going to sweep away everything from the face of the earth. He says there at the very end of chapter 1 of Zephaniah that he is going to make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. And this is what's pictured in Revelation chapter 20 at the final rebellion when Christ destroys them all. And then after that he destroys the present heavens and earth. He says, Behold, I saw him who sat on the throne from which earth and heaven fled. And there was no more any place for them. Right? And that's when the great white throne judgment takes place. The very next words in Revelation chapter 21, Behold, I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the old heavens and earth had passed away. away. See, that's going to happen here at the end of the millennial kingdom. That's the fulfillment of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord prophecy, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, right? The elements are going to melt with fervent heat, right? And the earth will be laid bare by fire. Peter says, right? Well, if you're just thinking logically about that, that can't happen here at the beginning of the millennium. Would you agree? If, if, if it did, or if you were to think in those terms, then you must see the millennial kingdom as a new heavens and a new earth. But it doesn't flow that way in the context of Revelation. You understand? What does that mean? Well, that means that the full scope of the events of the day of the Lord can't happen before the millennial kingdom. Even though the second coming of Christ is described as the day of the Lord. Okay? You understand? We talked about that at length when we were looking at 1 Thessalonians. So um, that's why I'm telling you that there's conflation in biblical prophecy of events that had happened. So you may be reading along in a text and it may mention several things that happened through the course of history, although it's mentioned in just a few verses of Scripture. Okay? So um, I'm going to talk more about that. But the point is just that uh, what happens is the day of the Lord gets inaugurated at the second coming of Christ. The full scope of everything that the Bible describes that will happen at the day of the Lord don't actually come to fulfillment completely until the end of the millennial kingdom. Okay? Um, I'd be more than happy to uh, try to address any questions about that um, or even challenges from Scripture about that. I've spent a lot of time trying to understand where the day of the Lord happens in the course of history. I understand it cannot happen here. If you simply look at the language, which you can go back in the lesson notes of the day of the Lord, you find out that God destroys everything in the whole world. All the sinners off the face of the whole earth, and he completely destroys the entire earth. Amen. Okay? So, um, got to think through those things. So, we have this parenthesis, right, that's taking place. 
That parenthesis is the time when Christians are living. That parenthesis is the time of Christian persecution. You understand? Because when the Lord Jesus comes back again, guess what? Ain't going to be no more persecution. That's Paul's point, right? He's going to come and give the Christians relief. Well, we understand that from the context of, of both the book of Second Thessalonians and our understanding of history, right, that that relief is going to come ultimately and finally at the second coming of Christ. It was not something that was witnessed by the Thessalonians. Are you with me? Even though a preterist would tell you that it was. A preterist would tell you that this was fulfilled in 70 AD. But we know that it wasn't, right? Why? Because when the Bible says the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels and and deal out retribution to those who don't know God, we know that hasn't happened yet. Amen? Amen? So... um, What's happening then is the church age is going on and it's going to come to fruition with the 70th week of Daniel and the second coming of Christ. Okay? And of course that's what all the hype and controversy and complex Bible study and all the passages of Scripture and the prophets are all converging on this time period in history and it speaks about it from every different perspective. And it becomes rather difficult to kind of wade your way through all of that, Right? So if you really want to understand it, you've got to, you've got to be a student of Scripture. Amen? Okay. So, then I also sent out an article to the email list on preterism that was far better written than anything I could say about it by Fred Zaspel. Did everybody get that? Yes. Um, so, if you will... Um, there was some, some more supporting uh, information I wanted to give you, which I really didn't feel like we had time to cover all of that in class. Preterism is a, is a, is a growing movement in American Christianity. And um, it's a popular view. It really is not uh, uh, just some obscure view of, of end-time events. In, in the recent decades, it's been popularized by some very popular people. I mentioned last week, uh, Hank Hennegraaff is a preterist. He's written this book, The uh, Apocalypse Code, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, subsequent uh, uh, book series, uh, all dedicated to teaching the idea of preterism, okay? Uh, there's a book called Last Day's Madness, which is probably the text that most preterists really, really uh, recommend to others to read if they want to learn about preterism. And um, uh, it's a, it is a very popular view. And I thought it was worthy of, of really spending at least a little bit of time trying to describe and understand what it is and, and what it's about. Okay? But in, just suffice to say, if you're going to take a preterist view, then you have to deal with several scriptures in an allegorical way. Right? You have to say, like, for instance, that if we're going to say that Jesus came in 70 A.D. and in the, in, in, in the, the uh, sun was darkened and the moon didn't shine, the stars fell from the sky, right? And the sign of the Son of Man appeared in the sky and all the nations of the earth mourned in 70 A.D. Yeah, that has to be an allegory. Okay? It, it can't, it, because it hasn't happened yet. So, uh, if you will... We don't read the Bible that way. We read the Bible in a historical, grammatical sense. 
We take it in its plain, literal reading, unless the text indicates some specific reason why it's to be taken as an allegory. Are you with me? And of course, the Bible's full of those kinds of things, anthropomorphisms and hyperboles and, and, and different kinds of metaphors to teach certain things, but the text always indicates that. Are you with me? There's nothing in the text of the Olivet Discourse that indicates those things are an allegory. Especially when you combine that with other passages in, in uh, the New Testament where we get very clear teaching from the apostles like Paul who says, look, Jesus is going to show up in the sky in flaming fire with his mighty angels. There's no allegory there, right? Okay, so <clears throat> moving on then, halfway down page 75. Verse 7 says, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Here now Paul continues to comfort the persecuted Thessalonians by reminding them that Christ is coming in power to give deliverance to his people and to vindicate them by a terrible vengeance poured out on their enemies. This then is another text wherein Paul gives us more details of the coming parousia of Christ. Here now in the context of what he will do to the wicked unbelievers at his return. So what I'm saying is you remember that going through the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul keeps mentioning this parousia, that we're waiting for his son from heaven or that he's coming with all of his saints, right? And then when he gets to, the, to chapter 4, verse 15 and following, he describes what that parousia was like. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the voice of the archangel and a loud trumpet call, right? And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we be with the Lord forever. Right? Paul described vividly what that coming of Christ looked like. What that parousia was and what he did then and there. Well, going on into 2 Thessalonians, he is now answering questions that they had about his first letter. And uh, the first two chapters, Paul is, is really speaking about eschatological events. And he's describing this parousia, this coming day of the Lord, right, in more detail. Here, it's not so much in the context of the deliverance he's going to bring to his people, but it is what he's going to do to the wicked unbelievers, verses 7 through uh, 9. And uh, so you remember that Paul had previously taught them that sudden destruction would come upon the unbelievers and they will not escape the fierce judgment of Christ at the day of the Lord when he will return to deliver his people and destroy the unbelieving world. You see, this is what he told them. He said, look, the Lord's going to descend from heaven. He's going he's to raise the dead. And those we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up to meet him in the air. He said, when that happened, he said, the people in the world are going to be saying, peace and safety. And then what? Sudden destruction is going to come upon them all. But he said to the Thessalonians, he said, but that day is not going to overtake you like a thief, right? Why? Because you're sons of the day. You know, you understand, you discern the signs of the times, right? This is what Paul says. The wicked and unbelieving world will be caught like a thief in the night by the coming of Christ. But the Thessalonians would not be caught in that way. Why? Because as Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse, they were ready. They were ready for his return. They were eagerly expecting. This is the doctrine of eminency that's so prevalent in the scripture. 
1 Thessalonians verse 5, chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pains upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Paul specifically says that the Christian's deliverance will come when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He speaks then of the second coming of Christ, which he had given them some teaching about already, but here more specifically is addressing the fact that he is coming to destroy their enemies who are persecuting them severely. And so the emphasis is placed on Christ's coming in power to destroy these enemies and the events that will unfold for their enemies. In speaking of this coming, he calls it when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. Consider several things here. First, he is the Lord Jesus, emphasizing his sovereign lordship, who will put an end to these unbelievers who are troubling and persecuting his people. And so the idea is, look, it's Jesus who's coming back. The Lord Jesus, the sovereign Lord of heaven. Amen? When their deliverer comes, look, he's mighty to save. Amen? He's not just another man, is he? No, he's the God-man. Amen? He has power to save. Second, he will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire. Notice here the word for revealed is the Greek apocalypsis, meaning revelation or unveiling or uncovering. He will be revealed. <clears throat> the idea is that he is not evident to the eyes in plain sight, but there will come a day, yes, even the second coming, when he will be revealed from heaven. So the point is, is that now we don't see Christ. There's coming a point in time when we are going to see him. His return is going to be personal and visible and bodily. Amen? Jesus himself is going to descend from heaven. He's going to be revealed from heaven. This second coming of Christ is a major theme in the Bible and seen as the climactic event of world history, which begins the last stage of God's plan for the nations of mankind and the culmination of his purposes upon planet Earth. So what we have in view is the second coming of Christ. Except here it's the negative view of what he is going to bring as vengeance and destruction. Okay? It's not the positive side of deliverance for those who are being persecuted. Although it is for them, and this verse is specifically 7, 8, and 9, he's talking about what uh, retribution that Christ pours out. Third, this revealing is said to be from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now this language of the second coming of Christ is very similar to other passages which speak of his coming, or parousia in the Greek. He said to, um, I'm sorry, he is said to come on the clouds of heaven and with great glory and with angels and trumpets. The scene is of a mighty conqueror coming to take his enemies by force and bring their rebel kingdom under his domain. This brings us then into the context of several other Bible passages, but most importantly, the language is consistent with the Olivet Discourse and Jesus' teaching on his second coming. 
So when you think about Paul saying that Jesus is going to come and bring these Thessalonians deliverance when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels. What you see there is the the vision of Christ coming again from heaven. Jesus is going to be revealed in the sky. And this is what Jesus said would happen as he described in the Olivet Discourse what would be the signs of his coming and of the end of the age. When he got to the point of describing this, he says, I'm going to read from the verse there in Mark chapter 13, verse 24 through 27. He says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now what is that? That's the Lord Jesus being revealed from heaven in flaming fire. And here comes the mighty angels. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. What does the Lord do when he descends from heaven? He raises the dead in Christ and he raptures the living church who is under severe persecution at this point. In fact, the persecution is so severe, he says, when you see the great tribulation taking place, right? He says, it will be suffering that has not happened from the beginning of the world until that time. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Cut short how? By the Lord Jesus being revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels. Coming to bring relief to the elect. Coming to save them and deliver them. Many, many times throughout all of Scripture, Old Testament and New, when the Messiah is seen to come in his glory, he's coming to deliver his people. And he's coming to judge his enemies, like we read in Psalm 94. It is always a deliverance. And it is always a judgment. There's two kinds of people in the world. Those who are going to be delivered and those who are going to be judged isn't that what our gospel declares it surely is he uh, said in Matthew 13 verses 40 through 43 therefore just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire so shall it be at the end of the age the son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Here who has ears, let him hear. And so again, you see a deliverance of God's people into righteousness and a judgment, the furnace of fire, for those who are not his. In fact, the Old Testament image of the conquering Messiah pictures him in this way, coming in the clouds of heaven, which culminates in his established kingdom, which is seen to be an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. So the messianic vision, you understand the title, the son of man, is a term that comes from uh, uh, Daniel chapter 7. It's a messianic title. And there the Messiah is pictured before the throne of the Almighty. 
And he actually, in the course of that vision in Daniel 7, he comes and destroys the Antichrist. And um, this is exactly what Jesus is going to do when he returns. He's going to come and destroy the Antichrist, and then he's going to set up his rule upon the earth, and then he's going to give his rule to his saints, and they're going to reign with him. If you will, look, open your Bible, Daniel chapter 7. We'll go, we'll go back to verse 9. We'll start there. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Of course, this is in the course of this vision that Daniel sees where there are these beasts that come up in his vision, four great beasts, and then the fourth great and terrifying beast, right, that tramples down the whole earth and its victims, right? And, uh, of course, this is the kingdom of the Antichrist, and the Antichrist himself is pictured as, as the little horn in this beast or the, the, the power part of it, the, the, uh, the king himself of this kingdom, this beast. Sorry, I don't mean to confuse you. <laughs> Reading from verse 9 and following. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. Now, who's that? The Antichrist. <clears throat> Where do we see that imagery in, in the New Testament? The boastful words which the horn was speaking. Revelation chapter 13, verses 4 and following, right? He was given a mouth, right? To speak great blasphemies and to slander those who live in heaven, right? I kept looking, Daniel 7:11, until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Now, now where do we see that in the New Testament? Revelation chapter 19, right at the end of the chapter. Jesus comes and he throws the Antichrist and the false prophet where? Into the lake of fire. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with, clouds, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given a dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Amen? Okay, well, if you read verses 15 through 28, there the vision is being explained. The vision that he saw in verses 1 through 8 is being explained in, in 11 through 28. <coughs> Suffice to say, it speaks about the four great kingdoms that come upon the earth, right? Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Okay? And this fourth great and terrifying beast is the kingdom of Rome. Okay? And effectively, 
uh, in this end time imagery, this little horn who speaks boastfully, this power that rises up at the very end of this thing, is the Antichrist himself. Okay? Um, I'm not going to dive into all of that right here and now. Um, however, what winds up happening is, like, like it said there, he's going to be slain and given to the burning fire. And at the end of this, you look down to, uh, let's start at verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, how long is that? It's three and a half years, right? That's half of what? It's half of what specific seven? 70th week of Daniel. Okay. Hey, we're putting one and two and three together. There's a lot to that, isn't there? Okay, well, so he goes on. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then what? The sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the saints of the most, the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. So what happens is we're going along through the course of time. The 70th week of Daniel, this Antichrist rises up. In the middle of that 70th week, he, he does the abomination of desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, where Jesus said during that time there would be tribulation such not had happened from the beginning of nations until that time. Right? But for the sake of the elect, that tribulation period is going to be cut short. In other words, the suffering, he says right there in the text, if those days were not cut short, what would happen? No flesh would survive because of the terrible tribulation, right? But what happens? Jesus appears. He's revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels. And he cuts short that time of that tribulation so that it's not able to go on so that no flesh would survive. And he does that, the text says, for the sake of the elect. Okay? So when this happens, Jesus comes at the second coming, and what does he do? He delivers his people, and he establishes his kingdom on the earth, his sovereignty. And he does what? In Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. He hands over that sovereignty to his people, the people of the saints of the highest one, in Daniel's language. And what, ha- what do we read in Revelation? Chapter 19, there he is. He comes on the white horse, the second coming, right? And he destroys the Antichrist and the false prophet. Then he binds Satan in a great pit, right? And then he gives, uh, there's a resurrection from the dead, right? What resurrection is that? The first resurrection, right? Where the dead in Christ rise first, right? When Christ comes, what happens? The dead in Christ rise first. We who are alive and remain get caught up to meet him in the air, so shall we be with the Lord forever. The sovereignty of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven get given to the saints of the highest one. This is what Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6 says. That they will rule and reign with him. That they will be priests unto God and reign with him for a thousand years. Right here. Okay? Physically upon the earth, Christ is going to rule and so are his saints. Okay? Which, by the way, includes the nation of Israel. They also get saved at the second coming of Christ. Okay? We'll get there. 
So, my point is that when Jesus appears in the sky, this is the messianic vision from the Old Testament. He's coming with fire, and he's coming with mighty angels, and he's coming to judge, and he's coming to destroy the Antichrist and the unbelieving world. Wherever you read about the second coming, this is why, this is why the disciples were looking for Jesus to wipe out the Romans. Because their vision of a Messiah was what? He was going to come and conquer. He was going to come and, and set up his reign. You understand? And so this is the messianic vision. Jesus is coming in fire, in judgment. Of course, you know, fire in the Bible so many times, especially in the language of Jesus, is, is, is speaking about God's judgment. And uh, if you will, this is what is seen here in Daniel chapter 7. But the point is, is that when, when God comes in judgment, it's final. It's over. It's done. And he's going to bring the righteous judgment. He's, his judgments are altogether righteous. Amen. And when he brings judgment, it's going to be final. Isaiah 2 and following, uh, verse 17 and following, And the pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols will be completely vanish. And men will go into the caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and before the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. You see how the prophets spoke about this day? And then in the New Testament, we read the fulfillment of it in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? You see that? You see what's going to happen when Jesus comes again and he's revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels? People are going to be in such terror they're hiding in the caves of the ground saying, hide us from him. It's going to be a terrible day. All the nations of the earth are going to mourn. It's going to be a terrible day. In fact, Jesus likens his coming to the great flood of Noah and also the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In this imagery, Christ is seen to deliver his people on the same day that he destroys the wicked. This is how Paul describes the coming parousia in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 5, 3, where he calls it the day of the Lord. This is what Jesus says in Luke 17. Now, this is not recorded in the Olivet Discourse, um, however, there is this same language appears in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew and in Mark. Here's what he says. For just as lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were given in marriage, right? They were saying, peace and safety, right? <clears throat> Until the day, 
that Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Listen, it will be just like, it will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. What's his point? Here's his point. The day that Noah entered the ark was the day that what? The flood came and destroyed them all. The day that Lot left Sodom, right, is the same day that fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. And then what does he say? It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. What's his point? His point is that the day he delivers his people is the self-same day he destroys the wicked. That's why the foolish virgins are in big trouble. If you get left behind, let me tell you what happens. Fire and brimstone. Don't the foolish virgins stand outside and knock on the door and plead and say, Sir, open up for us. And what does he say? Away from me. You workers of iniquity, I never knew you. That's the whole point of the parable. <laughs> the whole point of the parable is to be ready so you won't be like the foolish virgins and get left behind because if you get left behind, what happens? Toast. You understand? This is what Jesus is saying. And just so that you get an understanding of what he's talking about, he's not just talking about some second coming event that doesn't include the rapture. Listen to what he goes on to say. On that day, let not the one who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house go down to take them away. And likewise, let not one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life shall preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Now what does that sound like? The rapture. We who are alive and remain will be what? Caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Just like Noah, when the Lord closed the door on the ark. Just like Lot, when the angel was dragging him out by his hand and said, Don't look back! Even as they were running across the plain, Fire and sulfur were falling. Amen? The second coming of Christ is seen in all its imagery of warfare in the climactic chapters of Revelation, notably in chapter 19, where the second coming is pictured along with the subsequent victory of Christ over his enemies and the establishment of his physical millennial kingdom on the earth. But furthermore, when... In the context of the Olivet Discourse, when we read about the second coming of Christ, this coming is said to be seen by the entire world of nations. Now think about what Paul's saying. He's saying, you're going to be delivered from your persecution when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire. And he's going to bring retribution and destruction eternally on those who are persecuting you. This is a climactic event. Would you agree? Amen. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you what it's like. It's like this. 
The sun won't shine. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And what? All the nations of the earth will mourn. Right? It's said to be seen by the entire world of nations. The sign of the Son of Man, Matthew 24, 30, will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. What does Revelation 1 say? Behold, he's coming with the clouds and what? Every eye eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. It's just a little hiccup in the course of time and space. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus used it in this language. He said, As lightning shines in the east and is visible even in the west, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. It's a big, bright, shining day that rattles the whole place. People aren't going to be occupied with anything else. When the sun disappears and Jesus appears in its place in the sky, let me tell you, he will have everybody's attention. Are you with me? This is what the Bible says about the second coming of Christ. It is, a, it is apocalyptic in, in its proportions. Of course, that word simply means revealing. But the idea is, is, is that it's cataclysmic. All the nations of the earth are going to see this thing. And when Jesus comes and brings his judgment, it's final. It's God. God has finally allowed his patience and his forbearance to run its course. And there's going to come a day when he is going to have a day of recompense, a day of reckoning. In this context, Paul immediately follows this announcement of his return to say that he will be bringing recompense to their persecutors, those who were troubling the Thessalonian believers. This language of the second coming is frequently seen in the Bible as Christ is coming to bring judgment on all mankind, which is seen as divine vengeance upon a rebel and sinful world. As, for example, in Isaiah 66, verse 15 and following, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. You see that? Or in Matthew 16, Jesus said something very similar. He said, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. See, Jesus taught this just in the course of his disciple making, that he was going to come and he was going to judge. He's going to bring recompense to every man according to his deeds. This is an old, 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 old Jewish prophecy as recorded in the book of Jude chapter 14 there I'm sorry verse 14 it says and about these also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied now now get this who is who who said this Enoch who is he seventh generation from Adam that's how far back these warnings of judgment 
have been coming. Recorded here in the scripture for us. What does he say? Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds in which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. See, God has always been seen as coming to judge this rebel world. You think God is pleased that evil <coughs> taking place in the world? Do we think that he who formed the eye does not see? That he who judges the nations is not going to bring recompense? He is. He's going to deal with evil. When you look in the world and you see evil and you loathe it, let me tell you something. God is going to make it right. God is going to make it right. And it's going to be a terrible day. It's going to be a day of doom and clouds and judgment. And let me tell you, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. Their fate is terrible. It's awful. In fact, the words terrible and awful describe exactly that. Of course, we use them to talk about bad cherry pie. You understand what I'm saying? Our, our words don't have near the value they once did. I'm going to let you read that text of Revelation. Suffice to say that the second coming is also pictured in Revelation chapter 19. And what he does there is very specific. Okay, He comes in judgment against the kings of the earth and against the Antichrist and the false prophet. He throws them in the lake of fire. The very next thing he does is he has a big bad angel who grabs Satan and binds him in the pit with a great chain. And so he binds the devil so his influence won't affect his rule upon the earth. Right? So, ending here, when Paul says this short little phrase, this will happen when Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels. That immediately brings us into the context of the whole Bible. You understand what I'm saying? That event of the second coming of Christ is described in so many places in Scripture, and I've only mentioned a few. I'm really trying to focus on the teaching of Jesus. Because my, my whole point is, is that Paul's eschatology is Jesus' eschatology. And the two go hand in hand. They, they just fit like a glove. Because Jesus is the one that taught Paul. And because the truth is the truth. And the way things are going to unfold is the way things are going to unfold. <laughs> are you with me? And God's not confused. And neither was Paul. And neither was Jesus. Amen? So, let us then not be confused. Amen?